Our scripture reading today is from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Please follow along as I read aloud. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who, had, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. It's always a joy to see you, to gather with you, and to worship with you. So thank you for being here this morning. And I look forward to our time in God's word as we examine this section of the letter that Paul writes to the Colossians. So before we turn to our text, will you join me in a brief prayer? O oh Lord, maker of heaven and earth, ruler over all things visible and invisible, Lord, we thank you that from the beginning of time that you set a plan into motion to save and redeem your people. Lord, you have told us that you, who has begun a good work in us, you will be faithful to complete it. And in this letter that Paul writes to the Colossians, we see his warning to guard and to protect that work which is being done in our lives, to defend that which we hold most dear to remember that we are filled with, raised with, and alive with you through the finished work of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts this morning, that your word would not return void, but it, that its power would be on full display. Lord, I pray that these words that are spoken would not be my words, Lord, but your words that would have an everlasting impact on our lives. Lord, I thank you for each person here. And as John prayed, may you prepare our hearts to receive your word. and May it have its great effect in our life this morning. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. For centuries, there are questions that humans have wrestled with, whether you're a young child, a teenager, middle-aged adult, or someone in the final chapters of their life. People have sought answers to the questions of 
Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? What is the meaning of all of this? Like I said, these questions are often asked at any stage of our life, where when you have a child who becomes aware of the realities of the world and the spiritual realities, they might be prone to question, what is my place in it? If you have young adults who are launching into the world for the first time, they may say, what is going to give my life meaning and purpose? At the halfway point, the midlife crisis, you may be asking the same thing of what have I done with my life up until this point? What is the purpose? What is its meaning? Or in the closing chapters, you may look at your life and say, man, was it lived well? Was it valuable? Was it worthwhile? These are questions that have been asked and books have been written. People have devoted their entire lives seeking to answer these questions. And oftentimes, in man's search for meaning, as it were, people turn to religion or to spirituality or to however they would define it. In fact, according to a recent Barna poll, over 80% of American citizens would identify themselves as religious or spiritual, not Christian necessarily, but religious. And so what does that mean to be religious or to be spiritual? Well, a few prominent voices have given us some thoughts and ideas on the subject. The Dalai Lama says that religion is not about building grand temples, but it is the cultivation of positive human qualities like tolerance, generosity, and love. The Dalai Lama believes that there is good in all of us and it just needs to be brought out, and that is the purpose of religion. Or Napoleon Bonaparte, the famous philosopher, says that the purpose of religion is to keep the poor from killing the rich. He sees it as nothing more than a political means to maintain the power balance that he would have play out in his nation. But according to a recent Google search, there are an estimated 10,000 known and identified religions in the world today. 10,000. I found this staggering as a body of people who believe that there is one God in three persons and one way to eternal life, one purpose, and one meaning, and yet over the course of time we have devised over 10,000 different ways by which truth and enlightenment and salvation may come. And so throughout the course of a week, if you were to turn to your neighbor or to your coworker, maybe even a family member, and ask them to define what is religion, what is truth, what is meaning and purpose, you're subjecting yourself to the possibility that they may respond with one of 10,000 different answers. Paul knew that this would be a challenge for Christians, that we are a people who are prone to wander, that we are a people who seek after what pleases us in the moment, a mentality, a mindset, a truth, my truth, that we can get behind and live in accordance with. So whether when Paul wrote this letter, whether there were 10 identified religions or 1,000 or 10,000, he knew that these ideologies would continue to arise as people would continue to try to play the role of their own God and define what it means, what truth means, and what it means to be saved and to live in life everlasting. He knew that we were a people prone to wander, prone to look to the left and the right. And so in his kindness and his wisdom and in his forethought, he wrote 
this section of his letter to warn not only the Colossian church, a church that he did not intimately know or had never met, so we share that in common with the Colossians, that Paul does not know us, did not know us when he wrote this letter, but he writes to provide a warning and a response to these challenges that will arise when we are enticed with a variety of different thoughts around what is truth and what is saving faith. So if you're not already there, I'd encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. You will be helped by having them open in front of you, for Paul has a great many things for us to unpack here this morning, and so we will be in the text going through as faithfully as we can in the time that we have to better understand this warning that he gives us and what our response to it should be. But before we get into our text this morning, verses 8 through 15, we need to take a step back and look briefly at verses 6 through 7, which Tom Weichel preached on last week to help us set the table and understand why this warning comes and how to view it properly. So look with me at verses 6 and 7 where Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul begins verse 6 by encouraging the Christians in Colossae to remain or to continue in Christ, for they have received Jesus as Lord. This word receiving is that they have received a message and they have adopted it as truth. They have grabbed hold of it as truth. And we know this to be the case because we know that faith comes from hearing and believing. Paul has already highlighted the lordship of Jesus throughout his first few chapters in Colossians, where he says the kingdom belongs to Christ, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that it is by Him, through Him, and for Him that all things were created. It is in Him that the fullness of God dwells, and that all things have been reconciled. This language that uses, that Paul uses in saying that we have received Christ Jesus the Lord is a confession, a profession, that he is not just a religious teacher, a dynamic speaker, but that he is in fact the one that God has sent to save, redeem, and use to redeem his people and to set upon the throne on high. There is no mistaking who Jesus is, for creation and his believers proclaim him as Lord. But Paul then goes further to highlight this work that is being done that these believers must continue to walk in. And he uses passive verbs to illuminate this for us. For he says that we have been rooted, built up, and established These are things that God has done in our life and continues to do in our life. That just like the Colossians who have heard the gospel and responded in faith, we, like them, will be secure in the salvific presence of God through Jesus Christ. He's reminding us not only that we are to continue in Christ Jesus as Lord, but that Christ's work passed has been accomplished, and it is ongoing, that it secures us, and that He does not lose those that are His. This good work of salvation, of sanctification that is being done in the life of the believers in the Colossian church, and likewise in our life, 
is a good work. It's a sacred work. It's an important work, and it must be guarded. And so that brings us to verse 8, the start of our text this morning, where Paul, who up until this point in his letter has been nothing but positive and encouraging, he has given sweet encouragements to the church in Colossae. He has given them glorious reminders of who they are in Christ and who Christ Jesus is. And he has expressed a genuine thankfulness for their perseverance in these things. And yet, in verse 8, his tone changes. He gets serious and intense for the weight of the things that he is about to say and the warning that he is about to give to this church. For in verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See to it that no one takes you captive. Paul uses military language here by saying, see to it, or stand guard. We know that in the military that the enemy does not often reveal its battle plan, for typically the element of surprise is what helps them win battles or wars. They do not say, hey, uh, we're going to take a break, catch up on our hydration and sleep. We're going to come back in two days, and then it's going to be on. We're going to attack from the right and from the left, fiery arrows. It's going to be great. You all are going to be dead. They don't say that. They wait until the moment is advantageous for them to come and to strike. And so Paul says, do not be caught asleep at your post, that just like in war, we must be constantly alert and watchful for the enemy. For he goes on to say that if you are not, then you will be taken captive. And just like in the military term, this is not an easygoing captivity. This is not, oh, you were caught on the wrong side of the, the line, we're going to throw you in prison, turn on the TV, give you three square meals a day, and when the war's over, we'll ship you back to your homeland. For those who would have been captured in war during this time at the reign of the Roman Empire, they would have been beaten, removed from their homeland, from their homes, from their families. They would have been belittled, mistreated, and potentially even pushed to the brink of death. It would have been made abundantly clear to them that their life is no longer their own, but it belongs to their captor. And their new purpose in life is to serve their captor. Paul does not mess around here, for the stakes are too high. He does not make light of following after philosophies and empty deceits, which he defines as the source of our potential captivity. So as we must stand guard, lest we be taken captive, we must understand what these philosophies and empty deceits are which could serve as the things that ensnare us. As we look at this passage, we see that philosophies can be defined as ideas, false gospels, or anything that we build our life upon, look to, or worship other than Jesus Christ. These are the sand, the rocky soil that Jesus speaks about in His parable. These are things that seem convincing, reasonable, good in the moment, 
maybe even fit for the task at hand of saving and redeeming a broken and lost people, but at further examination we see that they are nothing but hollow and empty words. And we know this is the case because we know that philosophies are built on the traditions of men. The traditions of men and the elemental spirits of the world highlight that which is contrary to God. Isaiah 29, 13 paints a haunting picture of us, of this for us, when it says, And the Lord said, Because these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is in a commandment taught by men. They draw near and honor me with their lips. What this is saying is that they give the appearance of true religion, of what it looks like to truly follow after Jesus, yet the Lord says their hearts are far from me. This is a phrase that is used throughout Scripture to identify when people have given themselves over not to the teaching of Christ, but to the worship of idols. And so if we look back on our definition of what is philosophy and what is empty deceit, it's ideas, it's false gospels, it's anything that we build our life upon, look to, or worship that is not Christ. Does this sound familiar? Is there an alternative way that we might be able to identify or define this? Quite simply, it could be framed as idolatry. What Paul is saying here is that according to the human traditions of man, we have manufactured ways that we might be saved or might have eternal security and confidence, and yet they are empty deceits. They are hollow idols that we have turned to. For so often, we are convinced that Satan wants to accomplish evil things through evil means, but this is not always the case. He is perfectly content to allow good things to be used for destructive ends. For here we see Paul reference one of the main descriptors of the evil one when he says empty deceits, for we know that Satan is the great deceiver. So when we believe in these things and when we cling to these things as being substance, when in fact they are empty, we are a people who have been deceived. In the men's group that meets once a month, we are currently going through a book by J.C. Ryle called The Thoughts for Young Men. And as we were discussing it this past week, one of the quotes in the chapter that stood out to me, which I think is particularly relevant to our discussion this morning, is when Ryle says that he, Satan, will even help you to wear a form of religion if only you will neglect its power. Paul's reference of human traditions and human precepts and teachings, as we see in verse 8 and a little bit further down the page in verse 22, demonstrate this very thing. For Paul is discussing the practice of what is acceptable to eat and to drink. These would have been things that would have been well known to the Jews for all of their life. They would have had very strict rules and guidelines to follow about what was proper to eat and what was proper to drink and what was not. And in their deception, they have continued to cling to these things which are just mere shadows of what was to come, pointing to Christ who was the substance of these things. 
These things were never able to save or redeem or rescue a broken people. They were simply a symbol, a practice, a picture, a shadow of what was to come, which was Christ, the substance of all things. Commitment to these traditions or others that are made by man takes our belief and puts it in something other than Christ, which is idolatry. If Christ is not the substance, if, we, if anything that we do in life is not according to Him, then it is empty deceit. Dear friends, how prone are we to cling to this empty deceit? How quick are we to draw up our own religion, appearing to honor and draw near to the Lord while our hearts are far from Him? Many of us believe that moral living will secure a place in heaven or right standing with God. We believe that if we are good people, that if we do the right thing, that if we treat others well, that if we don't cuss, if we don't watch explicit content on TV, then surely God will let us in and find us acceptable. But this is the very thing that He's warning the Colossian church against. They thought that by abstaining from certain foods, offering certain sacrifices, or even worshiping angels, that that would be sufficient for their salvation. But these were simply idols in their life, not the substance of Christ. But if we take it a step further in our culture, there are many who believe that religious practices are what secure this right standing with Christ, and that are the meaning of truth. It's all in how many Hail Marys that you say, or how much money that you give to a noble cause or how much mission work you do. It is these things that will get you into heaven and that will put a covering over all of the wrong things that you've done. Or maybe we need to even hit a little bit closer to home. Many of us believe that it's in the altar call that we responded to, that it's just simply by attending church every week or showing up to a community group. Maybe we believe that it's in how much theology we know or how many Puritans that we've read or whether we're Calvinist or Arminian. But the evil one came to our first mother in the garden and deceived her by saying, if you eat of this tree, you will not surely die. How easy is it for him to whisper the inverse to us and say, if you fill in the blank, do good works, give lots of money, attend church every week, then you will surely live. Dear friends, let us not be so deceived. Let us not substitute the shadows of Christ for the substance of Christ. Let us be on guard so that we may not be taken captive. For Christ, as we saw in verses 6 and 7, is about a glorious work in our lives, that He has rooted us built us up and is establishing us. He has done it, and He continues to do it. And let us be on guard that we would not be taken captive. And so what is our hope for standing guard and not being taken captive by these things? Well, Paul does not give us a list of defensive maneuvers. He does not say, hop on bulkammo.com and load up. Make sure that gun safe is full. Go to Costco and buy all of the emergency buckets that you can and hunker down for a while. He doesn't say destroy Facebook, Instagram, CNN, Fox News, any of these other sources 
that can perpetually feed us our own version of truth and religion. But rather, He points us unto three different things. And that is what we want the focus of our time to be on, is looking at these three things that He outlines in His response to this warning that He gives to the Colossians. For He reminds them that they are filled with, raised with, and alive with Christ. And so, in response to Paul's warning, let us look at these things and seek to discern His purpose in sharing them with us. So, first, we are filled with Christ, starting in verse 9. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Jesus, there is fullness, and that fullness is what fills us. Paul reiterates this point that he has already made earlier in his letter that we have already discussed this morning, and that is that the fullness of God, the great I Am, has been pleased to dwell in Christ. Jesus is lacking in nothing, for in Him is all power, authority, justice, peace, and so on. For He is the substance of all things, and it is this fullness that we are filled with, that in Him we are lacking in nothing. We are made complete. In Him we find the source of all truth, joy, peace, and power. In Him we find all authority to stand assured on solid ground. The glorious news of the gospel is true, and our faith will not return void like the empty philosophies of man do. Paul is clear in his contrast of empty deceits that he makes it abundantly clear that those of us who are in Christ are not empty and deceived, but filled with the fullness of an almighty God. And as we seek to understand what this means, we also must understand that Christ was emptied so that we might be filled, that He humbled Himself, made Himself nothing, was obedient to death, even death on the cross, so that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that the blood of the Lamb was poured out so that we might be filled with the fullness of the living God. If we are filled with the fullness of God, then what more could we possibly want? What can these empty philosophies and deceits offer us that we don't already have? This is Paul's response in his warning of do not seek after these things which are empty when it is you who are full by the power and work of Christ alone. And so we stand guard as ones who are filled with the fullness of Christ. So first, we are filled with Christ. Second, we are raised with Christ. We look at verse 11 and 12. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful work of God. Circumcision was a sign of a covenant that God made with Abraham. 
It was an outward practice, much like baptism, to signify an inner spiritual reality. That it was to identify that God had made His covenant and His promise with, people, with His people that would be everlasting. And just like with baptism, that that is how we identify with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, these things are to be symbols, to be reminders, to be evidences that we are in Christ, but they were never intended to save. When the Lord made His covenant with Abraham, these signs of circumcision changed everything, for He gave Abraham a new name. He gave hope to the nations and He promised that it would be everlasting. And so, just as Paul warns earlier in our passage that people who are relying on food and drink and the following and the adherence to a ceremonial law, Paul continues to address that here for people who would rely upon the mark of circumcision for their salvation. Paul addresses this aggressively in his letter to the Romans when he calls out the Jews for saying, do you believe just because you bear the symbol that you will be saved? For it was not the symbol that would save you, for it is just a shadow, but it is Christ who is the substance of the promise that gives us hope and everlasting life. Even Moses, when talking about this hundreds of years before this was written, said, it's not the outward circumcision that you need, but it is the circumcision of the heart. And so Paul goes on to communicate that that is exactly what is happening here. That God has performed a circumcision on each of us that is made without hands. This phrase, with hands, is used entirely and exclusively throughout Scripture to signify the forming and fashioning of idols. So just as we talked about before that they drew near but their hearts were far from Him because they worshipped these images instead of the holy God, Paul wants there to be no misunderstanding about what is happening here is that this circumcision of the heart made without hands can only be done by God and is the completed work that He promised, that He would make us a new creation, that the old would pass away, that it would be removed completely that our body of flesh would be removed by the finished work of Jesus Christ, that as is signified in baptism, that as we share in His death, His burial, and in His resurrection, so we also share in His life. And in this newness of life in Christ, nothing in us remains the same, for the old has passed away and the new has come. And this is accomplished through the faith in the finished work of Jesus. That as we talked about several weeks ago, faith and repentance, it is two sides of the same coin. That we have turned away from sin, for we cannot serve two masters, and we have turned unto Christ, and we look to Him alone for our assurance and our salvation. And so we must continue to turn away from these philosophies and these empty deceits, that promise something that they can never deliver. For we are partakers of Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. We have been raised with Him. And dear friends, if you are here today 
and you are hearing that message for the very first time, or if the Spirit is awakening in you that you have believed in philosophies or empty deceits, then I would say, praise God that He has opened your eyes. We would love to talk to you about this, to share of the hope that we have in the finished work of Jesus. And so, please, after the service, find me or anyone that's been on the stage at any point in the service, and we would love to talk with you more about what it means to be raised with Christ. So in response to Paul's warning, we see that we have been filled with Christ, we have been raised with Christ, and now we want to look at what it means to be alive with Christ. This section of Scripture is beautiful because it is one of the most simplistic demonstrations of the gospel. It is a passage of Scripture that so succinctly and clearly walks us through exactly what is taking place in this new life with Christ and how it is made possible. And so look with me in your Bibles as we go verse by verse, leaning on the Word of God alone to illuminate this text for us so that we may understand this life that we have in Jesus. Starting in verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses. Dead in our sin is what Paul says. We had no love for God no love for His Word, no love for the people of God, no consideration of the spiritual things. We loved sin and rejected all that came from a good God. This was who we are in our former state. We were dead in our trespasses. We were dead in our sin. And in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, I know that this is a phrase that's probably pretty common in your day-to-day language, But what Paul is saying here is that just as circumcision was an example, and as is baptism, of the spiritual reality of those that are in Christ, the contrast to this is that uncircumcision says that there is no sign, there is no evidence that Christ is even at work in this life. That we don't want the things of God, that it's not even like a person that maybe you know in your life where you say, man, the Lord's doing something in them. There's none of that. We are dead in our sin and far off from God. And yet, God made us alive together with Him. That through the finished work of Jesus, He has breathed new life into us. And so we who were formerly dead are now alive. That we now love God. That we love His Word. We love His law. We love His people. We love the things of God. And we hate sin. We are not like we once were, but we are a new creation made alive by the power and work of Jesus. And this is possible because He has forgiven us of all our trespasses, all of them. For if any of us were to sit down and to walk through the sins that we have committed over the course of our life in thought and in word and in deed, Sadly, I can speak only for my life. It would stretch on for miles. There would be shame, embarrassment, brokenheartedness over the things that we had done, and it would just continue to unroll as a scroll before us. And God, who knows each and every single one of these sins, who witnessed them, who has read read through the account says, I will forgive you of them all. And He has done this by canceling our record of debt. 
He said, you who owed me much now owe me nothing. That this debt is like it never existed. It is no more. He has set it aside. This is a legal term for evidence that might be brought before a judge or a jury and submitted as evidence to make one guilty. And God says, no, let me take that and let me put it aside for it is no longer of value. It no longer needs to be considered. And why is this the case? Because it has been nailed to the cross with Christ. Where was Christ nailed? Where did the nails pierce our Savior? In His hands. Isaiah 49, 16 says, Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. That our record, as long and as extensive as it was, was nailed to the cross with Christ, and instead of our record being there in place, our names are written on the very hands that were nailed to the cross to pay our debt. This is what Christ has done in us, that we are no longer dead in our sin. We are no longer held captive by sin or by deceitful thoughts, by philosophies or empty deceits. But he has taken that which was dead and he has made it alive through the finished work of Christ. And Paul finishes this letter by saying, He has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to shame by triumphing over them. It is because of Christ's work that he has triumphed over all earthly rulers and authorities. They don't stand a chance with their philosophies and their empty deceits. Paul is here in his response to the warning that he gives the Colossian church, and he says, look at what Christ has done for you. Look at what he has given to you. Do not be deceived any longer. Do not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. But Jesus has exposed the emptiness of their lies. He has put them to shame, and he has demonstrated that everything that he has said he will do, he has done. And everything that he has said that he is, he is. What glorious news is this for all who believe. So as we bring our time to a close this morning, I have three brief points of application for us that we've touched on throughout our time together this morning, but I want to circle back and make sure that we are clear on these points that Paul would have for us. So the first point of application is that we are to be watchful. We are not to be found asleep at the wheel, for the enemy is coming. The enemy waits at the door seeking to kill and destroy, and we must be watchful. We must not give them a foothold in our life. We must not invite them into our home. We must not entertain these philosophies and empty deceits, if only for a moment. 
For as we talked about several weeks ago, Satan will not just present the hook and say, here, grab on, for where would be the enticement? But he will continue to set before us the bait, that which looks good and pleasing, and he will hide the hook that would so easily entangle us and take us captive. And so we must be watchful. The second point of application that I have is that we must know the truth. As I said at the beginning, this is Paul's anecdote to his warning. He does not give us a list of defensive maneuvers. He simply reminds us of what Christ has done. That is sufficient for us. But we must know what He has done if we are to remember what He has done. That is to take place in our own personal discipleship as we read, study, and pray through God's Word, but it is also to take place in the life of the church, for that is why we gather. Our purpose here is not to have a place of belonging or to have a group of friends or to have something to do on Sunday morning, but it is to link arms with one another as we strive to run our race well on the straight and narrow path so that year by year we may usher one another into the kingdom and presence of God where He will say, well done, good and faithful servant, that we stayed on course, that we ran our race and we finished well. That is the role that we are to play for one another. So we must remind ourselves and preach this gospel to us individually, to our families, but we must preach it to one another and to encourage one another daily. And last but not least, we must be a people who carry our cross. For this is the true mark of a believer as we see in Matthew 16, 24, when Jesus says, if anyone would follow after me, take up his cross and come. We should not be a people who are in search of what is easy. We should not be in search of things that cater to our fleshly desires. The Lord has said the path is straight, it is narrow, so we should not spend our life looking to expand it. That is what these 10,000 plus religions do. That is the whole purpose in defining what is my truth so that we can walk whichever path seems right in our own eyes and be content or at peace or so we say in our own minds. But we have confessed Christ Jesus as Lord and so if we confess Him as Lord, we have no other option but to follow Him. We must be prepared to suffer We must be prepared for trials. And so we carry our cross and we follow Him because if we are filled with, raised with, and alive with Christ, we can do nothing else. And we don't fear this road and this journey for the fullness of Christ dwells in us and will carry us home. Let us pray. Lord, what glorious truths that we have discussed this morning. That even after the hard words that Paul gives us, warning us to stand guard and to not be taken captive, he reminds us of the hope that we have in the finished work of Jesus, that we are not what we once were, dead in our sin, hopeless, 
suffering under the weight of a law and a debt that we could not satisfy. But as Paul sweetly reminded us that you have forgiven us all of our trespasses, that you have canceled our debt, that you have set it aside, and that it has been nailed to the cross. Lord, I pray that we would be brothers and sisters who would remind one another and encourage each other in the truth, that we would not be swept along by every wind of doctrine, that we would not believe philosophies and empty deceits that are found on the traditions of men, but that we would cling only to that which we have been given according to Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, I pray that you would go with us from this place, that your word would not return void, that it would do its work in our hearts, in our lives, and in the life of our church. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.